From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello, hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Uh, Joining me, as they do from time to time, uh, I'm kind of lonely again. Uh, It's another episode where I am by myself in Studio A here in Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. But on the line, we have the former one-star admiral from your United States Coast. Wow, I said that. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I almost said it. He is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. It's Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral. And I'm still taller than six feet. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Got to go puddle pirate. Nice job. (laughs) Joining us from the Bay State, or we'll call it an undisclosed location in New England. Uh, Marblehead, Mass, if you want to say it. Okay. All right. Joining us from Marblehead, Mass. The reason I say it is because it's actually the birthplace of the American Navy. Believe it or not. Uh, wow. Ken, <laughs> did you know that? I don't think Ken knows. Or he did. He didn't care. Of course I knew that. Come on. You did dude. know that. Oh, all right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Very good. Uh, he is the author of Politics on the Rocks and a former contributor to Huffington Post. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Rich, thanks for joining us. Sure. <clears throat> and, of course, in the cage is Rob the Engineer. Hi, Rob. Hello, Justin. And uh, out somewhere in the Hintersphere, I, I keep forgetting, i got to mention uh, Eric uh, Eric Thomas, our producer. He's out doing something. He's not in studio today, but he's monitoring us. So, hello, Eric. Uh, I do want to say one thing before we get started. I want to say congratulations to a couple of people that have been associated with the show uh, number one, I want to say congratulations to Abigail Stein, who just graduated from the University of Delaware. She is a former intern of ours and found out she had graduated. But especially so, uh, we we have to. Uh, well, you know, I'll say that to the end because I want to get. I want to send her a message. Our uh, our uh, former or our, I guess I call her uh, producer Emiratus, but we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Anyway, uh, let's talk about what's going on. If you haven't noticed, President Trump hasn't been in the country. And you're thinking, wait a minute, the president goes overseas. What possibly could go wrong? (laughs) It's Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump went and had a a state visit with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He is also, excuse me. He is also the first foreign leader to meet with the newly enthroned Emperor Naruhito. Um, it, that is kind of a big deal. That <clears throat> he's setting the bar. He's setting the bar there, so it can only go up from there. And <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a dry throat. Hold on, I'm going to take this. Uh, Admiral Ken. While I'm taking a drink and clearing my throat, um, what did you think about the president's uh, appearance in Japan? Successful, not successful, or oh my God, we're going to die? <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's oh my God, we're going to die. I mean, it's it, I, you know, if, if we compare it to um, Helsinki or the last two meetings that he had with Kim Jong Un. Uh, I'd say it was a roaring success. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, now, 
you know, you got to put that in in uh, in some context. I mean, he basically took the side of a of a uh, murderous dictator over a former vice president of the United States. Um, he basically painted um, uh, Japan into a corner by you know making Shinzo Abe agree that the uh, the, the the tariffs that he's thinking about putting on uh, on their cars is a good idea. Um, uh, I mean, I could go on, but so I mean, it, it was it was Trump it was Trump uh, um, uh, abroad, um, and I, um, I I still don't think that um, I still don't think that we are best served by um, characterizing him as an unconventional president every time he 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 does he does he does his thing. Uh, by uh, Trump being Trump, um, I think he broke a lot of a lot of uh, diplomatic norms. Um, you just don't you, you don't you know the Dixie Chicks, for instance, had their careers crushed because they had the temerity to say something un-American about an American while overseas, and they were just in London. They were just in England. So uh, you know the hypocrisy of of our of our party, Justin, just continues to amaze me. Rich Rubino, uh, <laughs> this this trip with uh, Prime Minister Abe, it, you know, Abe graced him with golf, uh, brought him to a sumo tournament, even gave him a cheeseburger lunch. Uh, yeah. They they even had um, they even had uh, Japanese steakhouse. You know, uh, what do you what do you call that? Like uh, they went to. Um, you know, you know where they chop it up on the on the on the oh yeah grill right. there. I mean, why is Abe so protective of the relationship with Donald Trump? And is that going to continue, especially with the parting words that Donald Trump said when leaving the country about the kind things about uh, Kim Jong Un? It seems like. This trip might have put a test to how viable the relationship is with Abe and Trump. Yeah, well, I think that certainly there are trade issues, tariff issues. I think that it's, you know, obviously it's good. I mean, just from, you know, just from a strategic standpoint, it's good to at least in the public, in the public sphere to be on the side of the United States president. But it's interesting, you know, I, w- I was – as the admiral was talking about, you know, all the different, um, you know, how you can't just keep saying this president is unconventional. Maybe you can say that he doesn't necessarily follow the mores of American politics. You know, there was a senator from Michigan, and Arthur Vandenberg, and he was actually Gerald Ford's mentor. And from 1947 to 1949, he was Senate Majority Leader. Those were the two years that the Republicans were in control of the United States Senate. And he had a statement. He said that politics, he said that partisan politics stops at the water's edge. And when he would go overseas, he would not criticize President Truman, which he would do when he would come to the United States. That's been the conventional American foreign policy. No matter what you say about it, whether it's a, a politician going after a president or a president going after a politician, generally speaking, when you're, when you're overseas and they ask you questions, you don't, necessarily, you don't go after them and you wait till you come home. For example, Scott Walker in 2014, he was seriously considering a presidential bid in 2016. And he was going on a state trip in London, and so the reporters came, and they were asking him questions about President Obama, and he abstained from answering because he said that he didn't want to go out. He didn't want to excoriate the president while he was on, while he was overseas, and then he, and then he came back. You know, when, when he came back to the United States, he did that. 
Um, what's you know, President President um, Trump? He, as I say, he pretty much foregoes all the mores of American politics. He was asked specifically about Vice President Joe Biden. Most politicians would kind of deflect, and they would go on to talk about something else, or he would say something like, "Well, he's not the nominee yet," something like that. But he, you know, but but they asked him. He says, "Yes, I believe that he's a low IQ individual." Now, you wonder what the you just try to think about what the strategy behind the scenes is in terms of the Trump. I mean, is there anybody? Is Kellyanne Conway? Is any? Is there any Trump advisor saying, you know, if they ask you about Joe Biden, I want you to say, and they ask you about the low IQ comment, I want you to say, yes, he has a low IQ. I mean, how does this possibly help him politically? Maybe there is some group on his on some group on the on you know of his his base that says, you know, anytime you go after Joe Biden, that says you have to that says you is more the more you go after him, the more likely we're going to support him. But I think that is a very small modicum of society. Um, the only I, I was trying to think of examples in history when a politician has gone overseas or has protested negotiated with the foreign government over the president's um, power. And I was thinking I was going back to John Boehner, and I remember back in 2015, um, John Boehner was a vociferous um, opponent of the Iran nuclear deal, the nuclear framework negotiated by then Secretary of State John Kerry. Right. And I remember he brought Bibi Netanyahu, the right. Prime Minister of Israel, who supported the deal, to come to, the, to come to a joint session of the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives. A lot of the Democrats boycotted that ceremony, and, but he had him come speak despite the fact that the president had a different position of him. But that's really the only example in, you know, the last, ever, you know, in the last, say, 50 years that I can think of where a politician has gone – where where a sitting member of the House of Representatives, this was just a Speaker of the House, had actually invited somebody from overseas to come speak without the President's authority. Um, now you see the President you know, going overseas, and it's become conventional norms for him to go after politicians. You know, he seems to be, you, know, you talk about the permanent campaign, there was this possible, Packadell was Jimmy Carter's advisor, he talked about you're always campaigning. In Donald Trump case, Trump's case, as soon as he's elected to the last election, it's immediately the next election. Everything about him is about a campaign, and it's about winning. Campaigning comes first. I think government comes a distant second. I mean, let's talk about the 300-pound gorilla in the room on this one. Maybe, Admiral. Go, go ahead, Admiral Ken. And, and you know, another another explanation for Trump. Maybe maybe he's just a bully. And, well, know? that could be. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, we we got to talk about this the 300-pound. Right. We have yeah. to talk about the 300-pound gorilla in the room, and that is the issue regarding North Korea. Uh, while Trump was in Japan, North Korea decided it would be a good idea to launch some intermediate and short-range missiles that could carry nuclear uh, uh, a nuclear warhead to places like South Korea, like Japan. Uh, when, when talking about it at a joint press conference with Prime Minister Abe, it, it, it almost seemed like President Trump kind of went, nah, he, he knows what he's doing. Leave him alone. <clears throat> Admiral Ken, how big of a deal is this? Well, uh, you know, it fits right in with the rest of uh, the the Trump mantra of never, uh, never um, admitting that you've made a mistake or that you're wrong. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in his administration, um, anybody in his administration, nor on the periphery of it, uh, that's got a clue as to what's going on in in North Korea that thinks for one moment that Kim Jong-un is going to give up his nukes. He's just not going to not going to happen and so this this um the 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 the, for the president to 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 step back and say yeah you know that's yeah he probably should have done that would be admitting that he was wrong about kim jong-un keeping his word that they're quote in love unquote 
and, and three, that, 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 uh, that progress, real progress is getting made. He will never, ever, he will never admit to making a mistake or thinking that, um, uh, that, that something he's doing is the wrong thing to do. This is not who Donald Trump is. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal for us um, because um, we, we, we have seen him launch down a, a, a very transactional foreign policy time and time again. Right. He's not. He's not willing to admit that getting out of TPP probably was not a good idea because at least when we were in TPP, we could have uh, had other nations working against China. Yeah, but outside. Okay, you should interrupt real quick though, because yeah. I want to go back to this issue of, you know, the missile launch. In, you yeah. know, that, I mean, that was just a smack to the face. To Prime Minister Abe and to our allies in South Korea, Trump could give a rat's butt about our allies. He will never admit that he is wrong about anything. You really believe? You really believe that he, it's like you know what? All right, he's going to be that way. He's a good man. He knows what he's doing. He must have a reason. Uh, Rich Rubino, does that surprise you that with one of our closest allies in the Pacific Rim? We're literally taking that position with with North Korea. Um, not you know. It's like we, I mean, I keep thinking back to when he was um, to when he was in Russia, and he, they talked about how the intelligence community had said that the Russians had meddled in the election, and he was there, and he said that you know I just talked to I just talked to Mr. Putin, and Mr. Putin said that he didn't, and let me say I don't see any reason why he would. You know, and you just say that, and you're saying, wow, I mean, he was doing that again. You know, he's starting with Vladimir Putin over the United States intelligence agencies. Um, you know, so I think that's something that, you know, if you think he's, by the way, if you think, I mean, and I'm not saying I believe this because I don't, but you could take this, if he thinks he's some sort of a strategic genius, and then he's trying to negotiate something with North Korea and, you know, the art of the deal, assuming, let's assume, let's assume that he is a genius, that he wrote that book himself, that it wasn't ghostwritten, and he, and he, his ultimate plan is for North Korea, is for North Korea to, you know, to disassemble the nuclear program, and then he get him to get the Nobel Peace Prize. So he's doing everything he can to propitiate him, you know, and that there's some sort of signal here because it's amazing, you know. At one point, you know, the president of North Korea <coughs> called Donald Trump a dotard, which means essentially a senile old man, and Donald Trump called him the Rocket Man. <laughs> you know, he wasn't referring to Roger Clemens; he was referring to him, basically saying that he was this truculent dictator. And all of a sudden, he goes and meets with him, and now he talks about how he writes all these love letters to him and how they have such a great relationship. So, you know, if you're really optimistic then he's some sort of a strategic genius there's something we don't know about here but i don't think that's the case i think that it's just him and the only time i ever can see where he was apologized would have been after remember the um remember when he was caught um when he was caught when he was caught in um on the train and he used the term um p-u-s-s-y and then he was talking about how he grabbed you know females and all that stuff right. and then to, then he was at he actually came on the internet and he made a statement he said i did it and i apologize and that's the only time, and my guess is that his aides were saying, you know, you absolutely have to do this. There's no way you can possibly not do this. But then what he did, I mean, this is how Donald Trump operates. Then the, the debate's coming up, and what he does is he gets Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, and Kathleen Willey, all people who allegedly Bill Clinton had either sexually harassed or in the case of Juanita Broderick had raped. Right. And he gets them the day of the camp, the day of the debates. And he, he holds a press conference with them so that they could all explain what Bill Clinton had done to them so the press, the press attention gets off of him. 
And what he wanted to do that night, and Rudy Giuliani wanted him to do, they said right at the beginning of his speech, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's interesting, right at the beginning of the debate, um, the families go up and, they, and they're introduced to the, to the family. So Bill Clinton would be there, and you know, Hillary Clinton would be there, and, they'd, and, all this, and they'd, they'd meet Donald Trump, and they'd meet Donald Trump Jr., that type of thing. He wanted for Juanita Broderick and Paula Jones and Kathleen Willey to be there supplanting the family members. And to be and to be there, so that Bill Clinton would have to greet him. So that the next day, that would be the that would be what the coverage would be, um, would be Bill Clinton greeting those three. But it was actually the Republican and Democratic co-chairman of the National Debate Commission who said, you know, we're not going to do this. But that's the only. I mean, it's a little off tangent, but that's the last only time I can well, ever think not, of Donald not, Trump apologizing. Not, not not completely off tangent because if you remember <laughs> some number of some number of, of months ago. Um, he tried to inject the the uh, the the, uh, the story that that was not him on that tape. Again, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Yep. You're again, right. He, he, Donald Trump. This is it is not within. And I don't want to turn this into a Trump bashing session because no. gosh, we, we we don't have enough time for that. Yeah. Could go on all. And he, could, and he could be listening. Yeah, well, I don't care about that. <laughs> I hope that he does. He might learn something. But um um but you know the the bottom line is his, the his foreign policy. Uh, decisions are completely born out of his belief in how things are, which in a lot of cases bear no resemblance to reality. Again, as I was saying a few moments ago, you know, he thinks that these tariffs that we've got going on are are, are a good idea. Well, uh, as Alan Moore pointed out in one of the previous shows, we're paying the price for those tariffs. And that by, mm-hmm. by pulling out of TPP, where we could have used our trading allies to put pressure on China to change some of their trade practices, we now have to go it alone. And you know what? I'm sorry. I think that this is a big mistake and that it's going to blow up and it's going to eventually impact this wonderful economy he likes to brag about every week. And, 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 my, and my only hope is that if, if indeed it does uh, negatively impact the diploma, it happens you know, uh, a few months before uh, the next election because then that will be a story for him to tell. You know, it's fascinating. I'll just say this. It's fascinating about TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because that was one issue in the general election that he was able to get to the left of Hillary Clinton on, in part because Bernie Sanders, who was running in the primary that year, was a vociferous opponent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well as NAFTA. Hillary Clinton's husband had signed NAFTA. She said that she was later became opposed to it and became opposed to TPP. But he was basically saying that the Obama administration and, the, and Joe Biden, who I guess this is something – if Joe Biden becomes a nominee, he's going to hit his head over. He's going to say Joe Biden supported NAFTA, Joe Biden supported the TPP, and he's going to say, I'm looking out for America first. So I think it's a political ploy with him. And, you know, yes, the, Amer- the American people, I think, when it, specifically NAFTA has become such a four-letter word in the Rust Belt right now. And I think Donald Trump is going to try to make the TPP – um, a political wedge, a political wedge issue. He's going to say to a lot of the union members who would be more likely to support the Democrats. He's going to say Joe Biden was vice president, supported TPP. TPP would have taken your jobs away, and you know it probably wouldn't have. But people don't know that, and because NAFTA has become such an albatross around, be a huge issue, and it's going to probably play to Trump's advantage again. Uh, but Admiral Ken, when when we look at the the issue of the delicate balance of security in that region. Uh, you've got China that's making an overt extension into the, um, in, you know, in, in, into uh, the, the South China Sea. You've got uh, North Korea doing what they're doing. To me, it would have been a good idea to at least go to Japan and assure not just Abe 
and the new uh, emperor, but the the Japanese people as a whole of, hey, we've got your back. We're not going to leave you. And this would have been a perfect opportunity to solidify our position as a true ally in the Pacific Rim. Was this, in fact, a missed opportunity by the administration? Well, of course it was. But you you have to go back and take a look at the fact uh, – you have to go back and take a look at how has President Trump treated our allies so far. Look at how he has treated Germany. Look at how he's treated Canada, our next-door neighbor. Look at the things that he says about Mexico and people from Mexico. The, the America First concept, in, 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 uh, as I've come to understand it from, from President Trump's perspective, is about – to the rest of the world be damned, it's going to be our way or the highway. And if you look at how President Trump has conducted his businesses over the years, um, that truly represents – you know it's not too much of a, of a, of a belief that that's, that's how he's going to do things. Um, he, he, he missed an opportunity there, but I think in his mind, you know, if I promise to be there for Japan, I may – uh, inadvertently insult Kim Jong Un, and I can't have that Richard. because he, he he likes Kim Jong Un because Kim Jong Un can do the things, do mm-hmm. some of the things that he can't do. Rich, you agree? Yeah, no, I think that there is. He certainly has a certain um, he has a certain affinity to anybody who has autocratic rule. I think that he certainly would like to have the United. And he would certainly would like to have the United States Congress. That's just a rubber stamp on his part. Um, it's interesting, the America, the America First movement, actually, if you go back, and it was actually a lot of people attribute it to what happened in the 1940s with, for example, the 1930s, rather, when the Nazis were, where the Nazis were in power in Germany and say, well, the America First people were the non-interventionists in the U.S., but it actually goes back further. If you look at Warren G. Harding, who was president from 21 to 23, he actually talked about a very similar platform. It's, it's eerily similar to what Donald Trump talks about. They were both economic nationalists in terms of wanting higher tariffs, being protectionists in terms of um, economic and trade policy. And, they're both, and at, least, at least in Harding's case, he did talk about America first. Coolidge talked about it, his Republican successor as well. Um, and they were, also, they, were, they were also for less government at home and abroad. They wanted less entanglement overseas. But in Donald Trump's case, while he ran on that platform, one of his, plat- one of his campaign slogans was, we're going to get our troops out of the Middle East. He talked about, you know, he tried to equate Obama with the Bush administration. But he doesn't seem to be doing that. He's actually sending more troops into Iran. And he doesn't necessarily seem to be the president who, can- who, he- the president who campaigned as somewhat of a non-interventionist. Now as a president, he's become more of an interventionist. And I think that gives him an opening for someone like Bill Weld, who's, more of a- who's become more of a – I guess you'd say a born-again non-interventionist in the re- Republican primary to say we need to really bring the troops home from, over, from overseas. And that's one issue I think that he can use specifically in New Hampshire, a state where Ron Paul and Rand Paul – well, not so much Rand Paul, but Ron Paul, a non-interventionist, did very well. And where Pat Buchanan, who ran in 2000 and who ran in 2000 – in the ni- 1996, rather, actually won New Hampshire in part by saying it's time to bring the troops home and talking about a non-interventionist foreign policy. Right. I think Bill Weld can be a very similar platform. Admiral Ken, it, it strikes me that the position that we took, I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, the whole talking about Joe Biden and the whole talking about American politics overseas, I absolutely agree. Politics stops, you know, the, the political discussion here at home stops at the water's edge. But does the approach of 
almost emboldening uh, North Korea and Kim Jong-un, does that not in fact actually make China stronger, more powerful, not just in the region, but globally, and diminish our power in the region on the Pacific side? I, I think that it does, because, you know, while we are, while we are dealing with all things North Korea, we're, you know, we're, we're not paying attention to the other things that are going on. You know, in, in previous administrations, both, um, both Democrat and Republican, you had staffs that could walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Um, this is not this is not those administrations. They are they are singularly focused right now on twenty on twenty twenty. Um, they are singularly focused on making sure the president maintains his base and on doing whatever is necessary to do that. Uh, up to and including uh, hurling insults at Joe Biden from from Japan, uh, which interestingly you, you you didn't see anything come back from Biden on that. One of his staffers responded, which was I thought was brilliant. Um, uh, so I, I think that the Chinese, you know, are, are looking at us going right now. Yeah, they're too busy, you know, trying to trying to get reelected, and you know, and we're 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 not really worried about them right now, and that's that's sad. Because um, it doesn't have to be that way, and I think at some point we're going to wake up to something really interesting having been done by the Chinese on the global, on the on the international stage. And what what it is, I couldn't I couldn't begin to to, to guess right now. But they are literally everywhere in the world right mm-hmm. now, doing some really really interesting things, both economically and militarily. And we are not we we are not staffed uh, um, militarily. And more, and more importantly, politically, to be able to uh, to defend against it. You know, I just say this: it's interesting because if you go back to what Osama bin Laden's writing in the '90s, if you look at some of his fatwas and some of his other writings, his um, what his what he was talking about was he what he really wanted to do was bankrupt the United States. And by bankrupting the United States, doesn't necessarily mean mili- being um, militarily, but economically. And part of that is that the is the U.S. in you know certainly. In after 9/11, you know, they were all the money that was the trillions of dollars were spent in Afghanistan. They were spent in Iraq. While we were in these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, China was not at it was not in any major war, and they were able to, for example, spend all that money investing in places like Africa, so which helped them, you know. And certainly now we have kind of a somewhat of a cold war. With them, but just you know, even Donald Trump when he was running in 2016, he said we spent seven trillion dollars over there. Well, there, I mean, there's some legitimacy to that. We were spending a lot of money overseas, whereas countries like China were able to kind of catch up to us and you know and and and, and pass us in some in some lanes. Um, and certainly by the U.S. going out of the TPP now, I think that does certainly is beneficial um, to the Chinese as well. Very good. Well, we're going to take a break when we come back. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue our discussion on all the big political happenings happening here in Washington D.C. because that's why you listen. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we're back for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Uh, Rich Rubino on the line, Admiral Ken on the line. We've got uh, Eric Thomas, our producer, out there somewhere uh, doing Eric Thomas-type things. And then, of course, we've got Rob the Engineer behind the glass keeping us honest. Hey, um, you know what? I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on the on the, on the uh, panel right now because something's happening. Something kicked off today that I thought was kind of odd, and, and I, I want to bring this up. It, it's a, I don't know how to address it because I know it's a serious problem, but... Uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, a trial started today where the state of Oklahoma is going after the um, drug manufacturer Johnson & Johnson. Yes, the same people that make baby shampoo. Uh, they're going after them for the opioid crisis. And this is the first of what appears to be several court cases, criminal cases, against opioid manufacturers. Um, I bring this up because I, I, something about this really bugs me. I know that the opioid crisis is a crisis here in the U.S. I know that the issue of opioid addiction is a public health just emergency that we need to address as a country. But does it make sense for these states to put money into going after the companies that manufactured these drugs instead of putting money into finding out how we solve the problem of these drugs. Uh, Rich Rubino, to me, as a Republican, and I know a lot of people are just choking right now, (coughs) including me, (laughs) but as a Republican, to me it seems like going after the company is cutting off our nose to spite our face. Why does this bother me so much, and should it bother other Americans, or am I alone? By bother, do you mean are you bo- you're bothered that the go- that the government's doing it versus you I'm, know, I'm some bothered. sort of grassroots interest? Well, I'm, I'm bothered. I'm bothered at the fact that the state of Oklahoma and other states are doing this. I know Ohio's got several cases that are pending, as does other states. Uh, that th- that they're literally going after criminal liability. For the manufacturers, right, and to me that that just seems like you know we're we're not we're not we're not going down the right path on this. I mean, I guess it would be. I guess the perfect path would be to kind of do everything would be to do that, but as well as going after the symptoms and why people are going out or why people are specifically um, so attracted to them, or for that matter, why doctors are prescribing them. Um, why doctors are prescribing them so liberally? Obviously, there are some instances where people, when, when, when there are some instances when they're when they should be taking them, but there are other instances where they can't be. It's kind of like um, on the issue of guns. Remember, there was an issue where there was an issue that got Bernie Sanders in trouble um, in 2016 because he was a senator from Vermont. He had voted to shield gun manufacturers from liability right. um, in terms of in terms of the use of their products. And I remember in the 2015 debates with Hillary Clinton. That was I can only just say this politically. That was the one issue where Hillary Clinton could get to Bernie Sanders' left on, and at the beginning, Bernie Sanders doubled down on it. Said, "Yeah, no, the manufacturers should not be responsible for the products that they put out. It's the people that use them that should be responsible for them." So that's the only thing I can think of that's kind of um, 
that would be kind of similar to that would be kind of similar right. to that. But I mean, I do think we need, you need to have you need to have. It's like they say when you know. It's like they say with oil. That when with um, it's like they say with energy. You know, you use solar and but you you use solar and natural gas and everything else. But you also have to use fossil fuels at the same time. In this case, you certainly have to spend put a lot in part into treatment. But you also have to come to where you know where this where the opens are necessarily coming from. But you know, in terms of I mean, this is something that could you know I don't know where this is going to go on a national level, but. Um, it's certainly something that I think that there's going to be a lot of support on a bipartisan way because this is one of the this is an issue that almost everybody knows somebody who's been affected by the opioid crisis in one way or another, and it does not necessarily discriminate based on economic strata. Admiral Ken, it's sounding more and more like I might be alone in the fact that we're going after the wrong. You're the wrong, not alone. I'm not. You're not alone. No, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I'm sorry. I think it makes absolutely no sense to go after Johnson & Johnson or the manufacturer of these, of these drugs. Okay, so look. Okay, so in the hands of, of medical professionals who are, who are allowed to dispense these medications, um, they know what they're doing when they, they give a prescription. If by chance, if by chance you've got someone in your home who is dependent on, on opioids? Who, who is, or, or who is, who is selling them to people who are dependent? There is not a law in the world that can be passed that will that can can really change that that dynamic. Um, I say the same thing here that I do with regard to um, um, some of the immigration laws. Uh, that that Trump's trying to uh, to pass. How about let's 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 use the laws that are on the books to uh, to resolve the issue rather than build walls or something insanely stupid like that. So I I think that holding holding the drug manufacturers responsible is crazy. But I do think that you know and, and I think uh, Rich is right. There is some similarity here with 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 gun rights. If you're if someone breaks into your your house and takes one of your guns, or right. one of your children one of your children uh, gets a hold of one of your firearms and goes into a school and shoots up the school and kills people, then you, as the parent, should be held liable for that action because you did not safeguard your gun. Similarly speaking, if your someone in your family is taking your drugs and, and selling them. Or using them, you as the person who was uh, who uh, had those drugs prescribed to you should be legally accountable for what goes on from them. But There's way too much passing the buck going on here. It seems to me that the state of Oklahoma is actually making a money grab here uh, to go after a big Fortune 500 company like Johnson and Johnson to. Make a grab because there, there. Like I said, there are other cases pending, and the manufacturers have been kind of grouped into a larger federal case out of Ohio. But it just seems like that by going after the manufacturers, we're yet again taking away the ability for adults and parents to have a certain. Um, I guess the right word would be autonomy. Uh, well, no, a certain personal responsibility on making decisions. I get that drug addiction is a disease. I get that, but 
suing the manufacturers isn't the answer. Just like I still believe that suing the cigarette manufacturers. Yeah, that's just what I was going to get to. Are yeah. the, the cigarette manufacturers, the cigarette lawsuits, which cost big tobacco billions of dollars. Uh, wasn't exactly the smartest thing. You know what it did? It made a lot of attorneys rich. And that is the problem. I don't see what suing Johnson & Johnson is going to get the state of Oklahoma in fixing this crisis other than cash that the state of Oklahoma, quite frankly, has never really been able to demonstrate they can handle on their own wisely. But in a bigger, in a bigger sense, though, uh, Rich, you know, I bring up the big tobacco cases. You know, did we see benefit out of the big tobacco cases other than the fact that we see TV ads saying, oh, this is bad? There's got to be personal responsibility in the decisions you make. Yeah, I'm going back to the tobacco. A lot of this started, this was in the 90s, and it started in 95 actually with Bill Clinton. And Dick Morris, when Dick Morris, who had basically been Bill Clinton's advisor in Arkansas, was not an advisor in the 92 campaign. After Bill Clinton lost the House of Representatives in the Senate, he brought Dick Morris, who had been a Republican and worked for Trent Law, worked for Jesse Helms, worked for Bill Wald, other Republicans. And he brought him into the White House, and he said, I need to get reelected. And one of the things that Dick, that Dick Morris said was you need to focus on a lot of the small bore issues. And he brought up the issue of tobacco um, regulation. So what Bill Clinton did is he became the first president to really go after the tobacco industry. I know we're going a little off tangent here, but he brought this, became the first president to really go after the tobacco industry, which hurt him and helped him. It hurt him certainly in places like Kentucky and Tennessee. It probably hurt Al Gore more so because when Al Gore ran in 2000, he ended up losing Kentucky and losing his home state of Tennessee in part because Bill Clinton had gone, over to, had gone after tobacco regulation. But one of the things that they did is you no longer see these billboards with Joe Camel up anymore. And, to, and I think that you know, um, yeah, I think that the I think that the idea is you try to save lives. Yeah, who are people who are 15 or 16 who aren't necessarily going, who are smoking because they're seeing these ads. But you you know, I don't know how you quantify how many people are becoming smokers but, because of what the companies are doing right, versus Rich, how many are becoming smokers because they're seeing their friends doing it and they're saying, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, but Rich, I mean, when when we talk about when we talk about that, you know. Putting Joe Cam on a billboard, okay, I could see that, but we're talking about, and 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 again, I'm not defending Johnson. Yeah, I, I'm not defending the pharma. I'm not defending big pharma on this. I just think that it, it's a useless waste of time when those time and resources could be put to better use. In trying to find out, look, it's not like, you know, Big Tobacco where, you know, we had advertisements. We had, you know, the Marlboro Man. We had Joe Camel. We had all kinds of advertisements. Nobody's advertising opioids. Nobody's been advertising uh, barbiturates or, or any sort of uh, illegal you know, or, or legal, what is now a legal drug under prescription, but nobody's yep. doing that. And, th- and that's and that's what bugs me. And Admiral Ken, you know, I could see if, you know, there was a method to this madness, and we haven't even seen any method to justify the madness. No, uh, except, you know, we're looking yet for someone else to blame other than the than, than looking inward. Um, you know, my, my dad used to say, when you point the finger at somebody, you know, if you look down closely, there's three coming back at you. And, um, 
So uh, I think that again, this 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 comes down to accountability and and people, you know, looking uh, looking inward to say, what can I do, you know, that I'm not currently doing now, or could I could I have done that I didn't do to 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 uh, to, pre- to prevent this from becoming the problem that it is. I much like you, I completely agree. Drug addiction is a disease. Uh, yes, alcohol, al- alcoholism is a disease, um, and, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, to get someone healed re- requires two people: the person who is suffering from the disease, and and their their their, their loved ones are, are, are to, to 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 help that person get some help. But holding Johnson and Johnson uh, accountable, holding. Um, uh, big tobacco accountable for cigarettes, holding Ardbeg accountable for my, you know, it, you know, if someone decides at some point that I'm addicted to scotch, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just, that's insane. I mean, look, I mean, anybody who's seen a picture of me, I'm not exactly the most svelte picture of healthy living. Uh, I smoke cigars. I drink too much. Rob, the engineer, is just chuckling in the cage right now. I beg to differ. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> you look wonderful. Look, 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 I'm, 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 I'm I, I, I dig, I dig your Teddy, your Teddy Ruxpin exterior, exterior buddy. Oh, I really thank do. you. <laughs> look, I'm, look, I'm 350 pounds plus. I am six foot tall. I drink. I smoke cigars. I'm not opposed to child for heavy of, of healthy living. But that would be like me suing uh, McDonald's. Because I'm over 300 pounds, that would be like me suing uh, Jack Daniels because I drink almost every day. Um, I I make those choices. I make the choice to go into a cigar bar and light a cigar and drink Jack. I make the choice to having a cheeseburger as opposed to kale. That's my choice. I, I I have to live. Do I have to make better choices sometimes? Yes. But that's on me. That is on me. And, you know, again, it it, 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 it strikes me that we've gotten, that, that it, it's another knee-jerk reaction to this issue of, uh, you know, how we as a society take personal responsibility for how we are governed, how we live, and the decisions we make. Um, it, it it makes no sense to me, but that 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 that's just me. Obviously, we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on that subject uh, moving forward. But I had to bring that up because it's really sticking in my craw about this going after Johnson Johnson, which Johnson Johnson, the pharmaceutical industry has made tremendous. Tremendous strides in trying to find alternatives, trying to find, uh, you know, other methods of, you know, pain relief, et cetera. Um, I just think that this is another knee-jerk reaction by a state making a money grab. That's just me. Hey, the other thing I want to bring up here real quick is, I don't know if you all saw it, but we have a, apparently, the Attorney General now can declassify Whatever he wants. The president has ordered Bill Barr, the uh, attorney general of the United States, he's given him pretty much carte blanche to go ahead and declassify any of the documents related to how we actually started with the Mueller investigation. Uh, Admiral Ken, from from a security, from a national security standpoint, 
Does this send a bad message as far as how seriously this administration takes security or, you know, I'd rather see great, great press than to protect tradecraft, let's say. Well, so it, it really depends on, on, on a couple of things. One, uh, if uh, Attorney General Barr follows the process that is in place for vetting material for declassification, and he follows that process and he listens to um, the intelligence organizations that are going to counsel him on how to do this, yeah, you know what? It can be done the right way. It really can. Do I think it'll be done the right way? I don't know. Do I hope it will be done the right way? Yes, I do. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you, you touched on this with your question. This, this, this effort to investigate the investigators um, is designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that's create enough distraction from the fact that the Mueller report might have said the president did not commit uh, collusion, but it did not say he was not guilty of uh, obstruction of justice. And I think what he's trying to do is to muddy the waters because that's what Trump does. Whenever he starts looking like he's going to get caught doing something, he don't look at the right hand, look at what the left hand is doing because the right hand might be doing something really important. Rich Rubino, is there, as a political historian, is there any precedence for this? Uh, the closest I could think of would probably be John Mitchell, who was Richard Nixon's um, attorney general. And we saw how well did. that did. <laughs> that would be the closest that I can think of. He was actually, I mean, you know, one thing you can say about Barr, Barr had really no relationship with Donald Trump prior to becoming Trump's attorney general. But in Mitchell's case, I mean, he was a very, he was a very strong ally of Trump. He was actually his chairman of his campaign when Nixon ran in 1968. And then, of course, he becomes the chief law enforcement officer. So obviously he's going to become an ally. And then he gets involved in the whole Watergate scandal. And, um, you know, he certainly doesn't have any reputation right now. But that would probably be the closest precedent that I can think of. I mean, the fascinating thing about Barr, though, and, um, you know, is that Barr does not has, have any necessarily congenital loyalty to Trump. He's not a Trump person. He was actually a George H.W. Bush person. And George H.W. Bush, of course, we know that Barbara Bush, for example, had a Trump clock on her on her um, nightstand waiting for Trump to leave office. So, you know, why Rob Barr has such loyalty to Donald Trump in the first place really kind of I'm kind of very kind of um, befuddled by that. Yeah, so are a lot of people. I don't I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure that Barr has a tremendous amount of loyalty to Donald Trump. Um, you know, if you go back to some of the comments that were made during Barr's um, Barr's confirmation hearing, he has a history of believing that uh, that that, that the, the the office of the president uh, is imbued with with special powers that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that should not be that should not be touched uh, unless it's of extreme emergency, and that's the best way that I can put it. Another way of saying it is, you know, the idea that a sitting executive should not be indicted is not just okay with Barr. He is he is wholeheartedly drank that Kool-Aid and believes it uh, to his core of his being. So, I, you know, Trump just happens to be the guy sitting in the chair that needs a guy like Barr at his side. Uh, and I think if there were yet another Republican executive that was trying to, you know, push the limits of, 
of, of his power. Barrett roll in to support that guy too. I don't believe that Bard especially has any kind of, of um, you know, uh, warm, warm regards toward Trump. I think Bard just has warm regards toward the power of the presidency and, and, and is going to defend that to his last being. You know, it's interesting. It could be that it's like the, on that point, um, just as an extension, as, as an intendant to it, it could be just like, you know, after Nixon resigned in the presidency, there were lots of acts in the Democratic Congress to attenuate the power of the presidency. Certainly under the Ford administration, there was uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney specifically wanted a strong unitary executive. And there were a lot of Republicans who I think kind of mi- kind of missed the day that they had that they had that and they thought that they'd had that under Nixon administration. And then, you know, for example, um, as they left, you know, the, his veto of the War Powers Act had, you know, um, you know, the, the Congress had overrode it, but they wanted more. They wanted the president to have a lot more power. Going back to James Wilson, who talked about a unitary executive in the Constitutional Convention, um, I think that certainly they got it under George W. Bush. They wanted the president to expand, and then they're getting it under Donald Trump. But maybe you're right. Maybe they're not necessarily. They're more institutionalist. They're just using Donald Trump kind of as you know, as a guinea pig to try to expand the power of the executive to where it was prior to Watergate. Yeah, but. He- by investigating the investigators, does that put uh, does that actually put the investigators in a bad position? I mean, look, if if I am working as a special agent for the FBI, or I'm the special agent in charge, or I'm an assistant director at the FBI, and they are literally going down and digging as far as it almost seems like they're questioning, you know. Uh, it, it almost seems like, in in the terms of the president, a witch hunt for you know bad you know bad seeds and non supportive agents in the bureau. Enemies uh, list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an enemies list. That's that's a great way of putting it. We should be scared of that, right, Rich? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, no, absolutely. The answer is yes. And the, I also think though that you know that at the appearance of impropriety is tantamount to a to an impropriety. I think Trump Trump certainly realizes that, and if he can come if he can come out and say that you know the people who are investigating did this, the people investigating did that, they did it for political reasons, they did something unethical. It's going to just put a in America's mind. It's going to put in their collective mind. They're going to say, oh, they all do it. They're all, you know they're all they're all corrupt, and then maybe potentially give Trump a pass on that. But there certainly is a political um, reasoning behind what behind what Trump and what the Trump administration is doing here. Right, and Admiral, so, uh, I, 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 I think that. You know, if you know Justin, you and I know a lot of people in the FBI, and probably, and I know less people in CIA, but we still know some of those folks. And you know, and as I have had you know debates with some of my 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 more vocal Trump supporter friends who are thinking that uh, Jim Comey and uh, and uh, I can't remember the, the 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 agent that had the affair with you know with this colleague uh, Peter Strzok. Right. Um, you know, I, I have to remind these folks that 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 those those people, those agents, took the same oath of office that 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 I did. That that in a lot of cases, I'm having these conversations with other mil- retired military officers. They took the same oath of office that we did. So, should we be worried? You know, my belief is that that by and large, the FBI, the CIA. NSA. These guys, they they understand the limits of their power. They are good people trying to do good work for the country. And if they made a if they made a misstep, it wasn't uh, out of any kind of right. um, uh, hu- or, or anger toward the president. 
that they made a mistake. But by and large, I'm less concerned about Barr finding that these people have done something wrong as I am about Barr declassifying something that will expose methods and sources that might get people killed and, and, and basically cut, cut off those sources where we can't use them again. That's my concern. I'm not so much worried about them finding anything wrong. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I love having these debates with, with Trump supporters, especially when they start talking about Jim Comey. Jim Comey got Donald Trump elected. Jim Comey is the best friend Donald Trump had. Yeah. If, you go back, if you go back and you look at the polls uh, before Comey got on and said he was reopening the, the email investigation against Hillary Clinton, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I, th- there's, no, there's no logic or rationality to this whatsoever. Absolutely. No. You could also say Anthony Weiner got him elected because if Anthony Weiner had never had that scandal, <laughs> Jim Comey never would have um, had to, would have looked into it. So uh, that's Anthony true, Weiner's- too. Yeah, th- that's that's true, too. Uh, hey, you know, uh, first of all, thank you guys uh, for for being a part of the show today. I do want to make one statement, though. Uh, Audrey Howerton, who was our uh, executive producer, she's kind of our producer emeritus. Uh, Audrey just graduated uh, from college, and we want to wish her a huge, huge congratulations. Couldn't be more proud of you. A large part of... The show that you know as Backroom Politics today was in large part due to a lot of hard work that she did when she was here in Washington, D.C. with us. Uh, so, Audrey, if, if you're listening or if Audrey's parents are listening, get her the message. Tell her that we're hugely proud of her. Uh, we send our love. We wish her congratulations. <laughs> wow, that was that was. Oof. I got to get rid of that cough. Uh, wish her congratulations, and we hope to see her and have her come back to us soon. Uh, other than that, uh, on behalf of uh, Eric Thomas, uh, we've got Rob the Engineer behind the glass, and Charlie Bernie behind the glass making a special appearance, our host here at, at uh, Podcast Village. And we've got uh, Admiral Ken, Rich Rubino. Thanks, guys, for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. You can also download us on your favorite podcasting services, including Spotify, which we're kind of a big deal now. Have a great week, America. We'll see you soon.